Well, good morning. Uh, glad to be uh, with you this, this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you open up to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, that's where we will uh, be this morning. Um, but but as, we, as we begin, I wanted to, uh, to say something to you that may shock you. Uh, and and it, it's truth, so, so bear with me and, and listen, even though it won't, be, it won't be pleasant as I say it. Uh, but you are not good enough. You you are not good enough, uh, and that's that's probably something that you have have said to yourself at times, or maybe not said it out loud, but thought it uh, inwardly. Uh, or you may not have have said it to yourself in those exact words, but you may have instead thought, thought something along the lines of, "I'm a failure because I I haven't done enough," uh, and then you can kind of fill in the blank. Maybe you feel you haven't done enough. For your children, uh, maybe you feel that you have failed, uh, and that you're a horrible person because you haven't done enough for your spouse, or you're not doing enough for other people, or maybe you're not doing enough for God. Maybe you you think along the lines of "I am not as I should be," and you can kind of fill in the blank uh, of whatever it may be that you feel condemned by. Some of you may also think, will God ever forgive me for, you know, and again, fill in the blank. Throughout our lives, there will be times where we begin to, to condemn ourselves in that way, where we begin to rehearse our sin kind of on a, on a, a repeat loop in our minds uh, and uh, condemning ourselves for things that we, that we have done and we shouldn't have, uh, or maybe for things that we that we didn't do and sh- we should have done or shouldn't have done or uh, I'm confusing myself with the way I say that but uh, we can condemn ourselves on an endless loop um, but what do we do when when we realize that we're stuck in that that cycle uh, of self-condemnation uh, well we, we need to we need to begin to think about our thinking if we're going to to climb out of that pit of despair uh, and specifically, we need to run our thoughts through the filter that this morning's passage will create in our minds. Uh, you see that the message that you're rehearsing of, you are not good enough, uh, that, that, that's a true message, uh, but it's an incomplete message. Uh, that, that message uh, must be completed by what we're going to, to see this morning. Uh, as we come to Colossians 2 this morning, uh, let's pause and let's read a, a full paragraph here, uh, beginning in verse 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at the end of the paragraph, verses 13 through 15, uh, but to get the context, we'll begin in verse 8. Please read along with me. Paul writes, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So as we, as we come to uh, the end of this paragraph uh, this morning, uh, we'll see that at the beginning of the paragraph, Paul, Paul issued a command to the Colossians. He says, in essence, be on guard. See to it that no one takes you captive, which the implication is there are those who are trying to take you captive. Uh, and there is a danger there. Uh, he issues that command in, in Colossians 2.8 to, to not be taken captive by empty philosophy, but by uh, philosophy or a worldview that is according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, the elemental principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Uh, and then, in the remainder of the paragraph, Paul gives three big reasons why they should do that. Because that actually begs the question, if I should do that, why? We can be, we can be the toddler uh, with God's word at times and say, if you're commanding me this, why? That's always a good question to ask because Paul or any other scriptural author will usually answer that. Uh, in answer to that, Paul begins uh, reason number one in verse nine. He says, you should uh, exalt Christ to be Lord of your thinking because of who Jesus is. Verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, hold your every other uh, idea up to Christ because of who he is. Secondly, in verses 10 to 12, uh, we should do that because of who believers are in Jesus. We have been uh, filled in him, or in essence, made complete in him. We have been circumcised with him, a spiritual circumcision made without hands. Uh, and we have been buried and raised in baptism with Christ. That's reason number two. So we have because of who Jesus is, because of who we are in Christ, and then reason number three is what we're going to look at this morning. Because of what God has done through Jesus. Uh, and as we come to these verses today, of verses 13 through 15, we're going to see what, what God the Father has accomplished through His Son at the cross. Uh, and even though this, this accomplishment was achieved long ago, it reaches into our own time. It wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago and, ha and then uh, it ceases to be important. But we need to understand what happened at the cross and how it impacts us 2,000 years later. Uh, and this morning, as you have your, your outline there, uh, we'll ask and answer three questions about the cross. What has it accomplished? Or I'm sorry, what was accomplished? How was it accomplished? And to what end was it accomplished? We're, we're going to look at those three questions. Uh, and uh, there on your outlines, you have the question and you have the answer. And, and question number one of what was accomplished at the cross is that God brought the spiritually dead to life. And we see this in the first part of verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Uh, and so Paul is, is speaking to the Colossians, but he's describing what they used to be like. 
uh, how they, what was their previous state before coming to Christ. He says that they were uh, spiritually dead, and that's the condition of every sinner. He says, you were dead. Uh, he speaks of death in the past tense, but usually how do we think of death? Death is something that, that's future for, 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 for us. So in, in what sense were they dead in the past but alive now? So that just speaking of death in the past tense implies that there's a, a transition that has taken place. Something is different now. But before we, we get to that, Paul explains why they were dead. And he gives two reasons. You were dead, number one, in their trespasses, in your trespasses. Uh, and a trespass is kind of just what it sounds like. Of, uh, it's a misstep. Now, you, you cross a line, you go where you should not go. It's a, a violation of moral standards. Uh, and, and without Christ, everybody is spiritually dead because everybody has, has misstep. They've broken God's law, as we read in Romans 3, Earlier, They've stepped out of bounds, and that leads to their spiritual death and their separation from God. Uh, ultimately, uh, to what Paul is first laying out here is they are dead because of what they've done. Uh, and then he, he speaks of something else beyond just what they've done. Uh, he says, so they're dead in their trespasses, and then the second reason for their death is the uncircumcision of their flesh. Now, Paul could be referring to the, the Colossians because there could be among them kind of predominantly Gentiles uh, rather than Jews. But I think uh, the circumcision that he's speaking of here is better understood in light of verse 11. Uh, because in verse 11, Paul sp- speaks of a spiritual circumcision, a circumcision that is made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Uh, it is by the circumcision uh, of Christ, and, and to be uncircumcised in this context uh, is to be uh, to not have your sin cut away from you. That that is the the circumcision of Christ is when when Christ comes in and cuts away the sin, the old self that used to be a part of you, uh, the, the sinner. God cuts that away in the circumcision of Christ, and it's a spiritual circumcision. You can't see it outwardly, but it's one that takes place inwardly. It's a a circumcision of the heart. So, so what Paul is saying is that mankind is spiritually dead because of what they do, uh, their trespasses, and because of the innate uh, sinfulness within them, they, their spiritual deadness because of the sin that resides within them. Those are the two reasons, and those are the two things that need to be addressed if the, the spiritually dead are going to be brought to life. Uh, and uh, what Paul is saying is that, hey, you were dead, but... Now God has made you alive together with Christ. God has brought the spiritually dead to life. And this is it's not just true of the Colossians, but this is true of every single believer. This is the miracle of miracles that Christ uh, performs, that God works through Christ. That while you were a sinner, God acted to make you alive. Uh, Ephesians 2 echoes this same uh, truth. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5. Paul again writes, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Paul says that in Ephesians. And then if you're, if you're there in Colossians, just look back, uh, maybe flip a page to chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Paul has already said, spoken this truth to the Colossians earlier. Verse 21 in chapter 1, he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then Romans 5, 8, uh, of God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatness of God's love is on display as he works to save sinners who died in rebellion against him. But, but we also have to notice here that, that it's God who, who takes the initiative in bringing spiritual life to people. Man is unable to bring life to himself because he's spiritually dead. The dead cannot bring themselves to life. One pastor has said, to be spiritually dead means to be devoid of any sense, uh, unable to respond to spiritual stimuli. Just as to be physically dead means to be unable to respond to physical stimuli. So if I were to, if I were to go to uh, the grocery store uh, and ask him for uh, a fish, or I guess since I'm not a fisherman, I'd have to do that. Uh, some of you would be able just to go to the river and catch a fish, but I would have to go to the grocery store. So if I if I went to the grocery store and got a a, a fish, it may or may not have its head. But if I if I brought it here and put it on uh, the, the table before me, uh, no matter how hard I I poked it, karate chopped it, prodded it, uh, would it respond? No, because it's, it's physically dead. It's not going to respond to anything physically, uh, no matter what I do. Uh, and if we all just suddenly, uh, you know, on the count of three, shouted at it like, and said, hey, be alive, would that, would that make an impact upon it? No, because it is dead. And without Christ, you and I are just as spiritually dead as that fish is physically. We can do nothing to change our condition, and yet what is most amazing is that God acts to bring us to life. That, that we who were dead, who could do nothing in and of ourselves, God unites with His Son. He doesn't just bring us to life, but He unites us with His Son, makes us alive together with Christ, raising us to newness of life. And oh, that we would praise and thank God for that on a daily basis, for doing what we did not deserve, for doing what we could not do, uh, we should praise and thank Him daily because we who were dead have been made alive in Christ. And, and we must understand this uh, as, a, as, a, as a past reality that if you have placed your faith in Jesus alone, you're no longer dead in sin, but you are alive in Christ. Uh, and, and what hope that should bring to our souls, right? When, when we are... Uh, condemning ourselves, what do we need to remember? That we are alive in Christ, that, that that sin has been cut away from us. It no longer has power over us. We have been circumcised by Christ in our hearts and we now have hope because we have been united with Him. And as we saw in, in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 a couple weeks ago, you've, you've been filled in Him. You've been made complete in Him. Circumcised, buried and raised in baptism. Uh, and our union with Christ is what makes us alive together with Him. And yet, again, all of this begs the question of, hey, so, so how am I made alive 
in Christ. So that, that's amazing. God has done this work in me, but how does that take place and how does that happen? Well, that's, uh, that's what we need to understand. Again, as we wrote, read in Romans 3, how can, how can God be just in just making me alive when I was dead? What, what, what's not in the picture yet is the reason for my death, my sin. What's happened to that? Uh, what has taken place? How can God be both uh, the just and the justifier of sinners? Right? Because if, if a human judge were to let the guilty go free, what would we say? We would be outraged. Yeah, we would be outraged at the injustice of uh, a guilty party not being punished for what they have done. So, uh, but, but that leads us to that next question and what Paul is going to address. Question number two of how was this accomplished? How are we made alive together with Christ? Uh, and to answer that, we see that God forgave the debt of sin owed to him. We're going to see that in starting in the second part of uh, verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We have been made alive together with Christ uh, because our sins have been forgiven. Uh, because they have been taken away, wiped away, uh, the debt is canceled, or literally, um, in the Greek, it's, it's obliterated. Uh, it, it's been completely uh, removed from us. Uh, but, but the wages of sin is death, and, and that is what sin earns. You go, you go to a job, uh, you get a paycheck, what you earn uh, is what you deserve. And again, as we read in Romans, it, it's not, uh, if, something, if you work for something, it's not a gift, it's something that you've earned. And, and what do we earn? What do we deserve for sin? Yeah, the, its wages is death. That, that is what is deserved when sin is committed against a holy God. Every time we, we trespass against God, we begin to accumulate a sin debt. Uh, and it just racks up higher and higher in the same way that your credit card bill uh, racks up higher and higher if you continue to spend. Uh, and what happens with that credit card bill? At the end of the month, it's just forgiven. Uh, and the credit card company says, hey, you know what? I know you purchased a lot this month, but d- don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, has a credit card company ever said that? Maybe if you were the winner of some contest. But, uh, and, and God doesn't do that either. Uh, he doesn't just say, hey, and as Bruce said, he doesn't just wink at sin. He doesn't just say, hey, you know what, all of that sin that you've committed against me, just, just don't worry about it. That would be to minimize himself because what makes sin so serious and so severe is because it is committed against a holy God who has given us life and breath and everything. We owe everything to our Creator and then we rebel against Him. We have openly shaken our fist at God and said, I no longer want you uh, to be my my creator, my Lord. I want to do my own thing. That is the heart and nature of sin. And that sin debt that you owe to God follows you around in the same way that your, your monetary debt follows you around in this life. And Paul mentions a record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands. And th- this word for certificate of debt is, uh, is the idea of an IOU. Uh, it's it's a, a handwritten note uh, by the one who uh, is in debt to somebody else. And when that happens, it's not the person who is owed money who writes out the note. Otherwise, you just write out a note. Hey, you owe me money. See, I have this written note. But it's no. It's written by the person who is in debt, 
who owes somebody else. It's written by their own hand because that acknowledges that they are obligated to pay this debt. Uh, and if you, if you don't pay what was owed uh, in, in ancient Rome, you would, you would face the legal consequences of that debt. That is the record of debt with its legal demands. If you don't pay it, you, you face the consequences. And all of us have that record of debt that stands against us before a holy God. And, and one day we have to, to face God and, and either pay that debt ourselves uh, with the eternal punishments, eternally separated from God, facing only his wrath rather than experiencing any of his other attributes and characteristics. That is the, the legal demand of our sin that, that the just and holy God demands of sinners. But, but how can I be right with God with this insurmountable debt, this sin debt that I've accumulated over years and years of rebelling against God? Well, well this is seen uh, in the last statement in verse 14. So we have this, this sin debt with, the, with its legal demands against us, but what happens to that when we believe in Christ? Is he says, this he set aside, he put it away, it's no longer a part of us. And what did he do with it? Nailing it to the cross. See, when you believe in Jesus, that certificate of debt that you owe is taken from you uh, and it's nailed to the cross. Now, in the, in the first century, when a criminal uh, was crucified, they would write up all of his crimes, all of his charges against him, uh, and they would nail it to the cross above him. Uh, we see this in uh, the crucifixion of our Lord. Matthew twenty-seven thirty-seven says, And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And that was the charge that they made against him. Hey, we're crucifying him because he's the King of the Jews. John 19 speaks of this as well. He says, they, There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. See, this picture that's being presented here is that when you place your faith in Jesus, that, that sin record that, that you owe, that is unpayable, that you could never hope to pay back to God, is taken from you and nailed to the cross of Christ. In essence, saying that He has paid for your crimes, that He was crucified for your crimes, not for His own because He never sinned. He, he was perfect, He was sinless, but your sin is what He went to the cross to pay for. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6, describes it this way. Hundreds of years before Jesus actually went to the cross, Isaiah the prophet speaks of the Messiah in this way. He says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's how the spiritually dead are made alive in Christ. Their sins are forgiven because they were nailed to his cross, paid for by his death. The forgiveness of sins is one of the most comforting truths in all of Scripture. Because what do, we, what do we tend to do? Is We tend to condemn ourselves. We tend to rehearse every one of our sins against God or against others. And you might be here this morning realizing that you are unsure of whether or not your sins are forgiven. You might be afraid to stand before a holy God uh, and to, to have to uh, uh, give an account for that sin debt, to, to pay what you cannot possibly pay in your own strength. Uh, and if that's you this morning, I, I, would, I would beg you to turn to Christ. Uh, I would beg you to turn to Him in faith, to trust in Him alone, uh, and to have your sins nailed upon His cross rather than remaining upon yourself. And, and if you are here and you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have said, yes, I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, that, that my sin debt has been taken away, then, then you can... Uh, echo that glorious truth and, and sing with uh, the uh, hymn writer, Horatio Spafford. Uh, he wrote a hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. And, and verse 3 uh, of that hymn captures this, this truth. He says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. He's calling himself uh, to, to praise God because of his forgiveness, because his sin has been wiped away. And to all who believe in Christ, we must understand and accept what Christ has done as, as a final payment. See, what we typically like to do uh, is to say, yes, Christ has, has paid for my sin. And then in our minds, we begin to try and do things to earn God's favor. Uh, we, we begin to say, oh, I need to go do this, this, and this. I need to, to read my Bible, to pray, and to do all of these things, and then God will be happy with me. But the reality is, uh, if that were the case, if, if Christ died and then you had to do all of those other things, that would mean his death is insufficient, and that you have to do all of these other things to, to complete what he did. But, but that's not the case. See, when, when your sins are taken and nailed to the cross, all of them are forgiven, past, present, future, uh, the ones that you know about, the ones that you don't know about, uh, the ones that you think are no big deal and you don't think enough about. So oftentimes those are the most dangerous sins, the ones that we don't think are very serious. Uh, Christ died for those and those are forgiven. And Christ died for the great big sins that you, you, you wonder if God could, forever, could ever forgive you for. Uh, and, and you're not sure if his grace can cover that. Those are forgiven as well. All sins are forgiven by God the Father because they were nailed to the cross of His Son. Uh, His perfect death paid for all of your sins. That means there's no more need for you to try and earn God's favor or to earn God's forgiveness. Your obedience to God uh, does not make you more or less forgiven in Christ. It's it's final. It's it's accomplished. So it's not a it's not a do do do. It's hey this is this is done for you in Christ. Psalm 32, uh, 1, which was quoted in uh, the Romans passage that we read this morning, 
It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And see, the, the forgiveness that we have in Jesus should bring a, a calmness and a rest to our soul. Rather than being constantly worked up of, I have to do all of this uh, to make God happy with me, you said, we need to, to take that thought captive. We say, no, I, I don't have to do things to make God happy with me. God is, is, is satisfied and pleased with me, not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross, what he has already done. So now, as a believer, what I do is not motivated to, to earn God's favor, but what I do is in response to what Christ has already done. I'm responding in love, in thankfulness to him. Galatians 2.20, my, my favorite verse and a verse that, that has made such an impact on me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. Uh, but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, Paul is descri- or describing the same thing that we see here. His union with Christ. He says, I've been crucified, I've been made alive, and now as I live... I live and, and do everything that I do because of what God ha- has done, because of what Jesus has done, because he loved me and gave himself up for me. It's, everything flows out of a heart of thanksgiving and worship to God for what he has done through Jesus, his son. The life that you now live in the flesh should be lived for Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. That should be the, the confession of every sinner, the confession of every believer. We are responding to God's grace, love, mercy, his holiness, uh, everything that was displayed at the cross of his son Jesus. It's his death on the cross that accomplishes our forgiveness. But to what end did God do that? Did, did, to what end did he send his son to the cross? We've already seen that, that he sent his son to the cross so that we might be made alive together with him. But, but Paul, in, in verse 15, is going to, to bring forth another reason uh, that, that God the Father sent the son to the cross. Uh, and that's an answer to, to question number three of to what end was this accomplished to what end did, did God send his son to the cross? And we answer that by saying God made a spectacle of every demonic power in verse two or chapter two, verse fifteen. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And and, and the main verb in that verse uh, is actually the uh, putting them to open shame. He he, he made a public ex exhibition of them. Uh, he made a public spectacle of them. He, he embarrassed them. And, and how did he do that? Well, that's, he, he disarmed them. Uh, he took away uh, their, their power. And, and we have to understand that in relation to the previous verse. See, what, what, is, what is Satan and his demons most often like to do? See, Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he is our adversary, and what he loves to do, one of his tactics, is to remind us of our sins, to remind us of, of our trespasses against God, our rebellion against him. Because when we think about those things, what do we naturally, how do we feel? Yeah, well, we, we, we feel low, we feel condemned, uh, but God uh, has disarmed them. He's taken that ability to uh, condemn us away from them. He's disarmed them, and then secondly, at the end, he says, 
He has triumphed over them in him. They have been defeated. Uh, and, and the picture here is of a, of a victorious Roman general. He would go off to battle. Uh, he would defeat his enemies, and then he would bring them back in chains to the capital city of Rome. Uh, and he would parade them through Rome, uh, these prisoners of war, uh, and declaring his own victory. There would be this massive celebration because he has triumphed over the enemy. That's what's being seen here. And something similar uh, can be seen in our modern-day sports teams. What happens whenever uh, a sports team wins a championship? What do they do? They throw uh, a huge uh, parade uh, that, that winds its way down the streets of whatever city their downtown uh, is in. Uh, and so, so that's the, the picture here of, of this is what God has done. He has, he has triumphed over every spiritual power, every demonic power through Christ, through the cross of Christ. But, but some of you may be thinking, how, how is that possible? See, so how are, how are demons put to shame through the cross of Jesus? Because it sure seems like Jesus was the one who was humiliated, beaten, mocked, betrayed, and then ultimately killed, crucified. That, that seems like, like Jesus was, was pretty humiliated in the midst of that. So in what way uh, was the, the, the shame of the Son passed on to, to demons? Well, uh, it was precisely this humiliating death that Jesus endured, that, that unjust death on the cross that accomplished victory over every demonic power. And see, up until that point, Satan was trying to derail God's redemptive plan, uh, trying to, uh, to uh, do whatever he could since uh, Genesis 3.15, when God said, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, ever from, from that point forward, God was trying, or Satan was trying to, to derail that plan. Just think of it this way. If, if you're Satan in the garden, uh, and God says, the seed of the woman uh, is going to defeat you, to crush you. What would you immediately do to that next generation? Try and ruin it. Well, what's Genesis chapter 4? Cain and Abel, you get the seed of the woman to, to fight amongst themselves and to battle against themselves, uh, and you get Cain to kill Abel. Uh, he, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. What was the first murder? Cain. You see how Satan has been attempting to, to derail uh, this plan, a uh, redemptive plan of God from the beginning of history. But, but the reality is that once the cross took place, Satan's defeat was certain because uh, God's redemptive plan was complete. Sin has been paid for in its totality. Second Corinthians 2.14 echoes the same truth that we see here. He says, uh, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in the triumphal procession and even through us spreads the, fa- the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, when when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, uh, he said, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build the church uh, because and the church is built upon what? Upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If if Satan was able to derail the, the the crucifixion, then all of that would have been for naught. There would be no church because our sins have not been atoned for. But Jesus says the gates of hell, meaning the powers of Satan, shall not prevail against it. And then Romans eight thirty seven. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. 
So we, we are victorious in Christ over every spiritual power. And Satan, who is the accuser, the adversary, has no ground on which to accuse Christians uh, after the cross. Now, he has no right to, to come and make any charges uh, against us. Again, that's seen in Romans 8. Uh, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. How, how amazing is that? That what, that what seemed to Satan and the demons at the time, that, that we, we, we have the Son of God hanging on the cross, appearing as if he's defeated, that was actually the defeat of Satan himself. One, one pastor said, Irony of ironies, the cross in which the evil powers thought they had defeated Christ was the cross through which he sealed their doom. And it is through the cross that we who were doomed are set free. That, that is the reversal that has taken place. Uh, through Christ's death, we who were, who were doomed, who were dead in our sins, are made alive. Uh, and those spiritual powers who thought they were victorious, they are now doomed. And, and, and if Christ has been victorious over every spiritual power, uh, and these spiritual powers, these demonic beings, have been spoken of several times in uh, Colossians. Uh, first in, in 1.16, where uh, Paul points out that, that Jesus is the one who created uh, every angelic being. Uh, and then they're mentioned again in 2 verse 10, uh, where Paul says that uh, we have been filled, we have been made complete in the one who is uh, the head and the authority over every uh, angelic being, uh, over all rule and authority. Uh, and then in this verse, uh, where it says that, that he has disarmed them, he has put them to, to open shame. And, and for us to be united together with Christ means that, that we are victorious against every spiritual power. Sin, death, Satan, demons, uh, they have all been rendered powerless in our lives. God, it's a, kind of the idea of what's being said, kind of... They, they've been completely disrobed and, and everything's been taken away from them by God through his son. Uh, now, Satan and his demons being disarmed uh, and, and being defeated, does that mean that they no longer exist? No, they're still very much alive. Uh, and even though they cannot uh, act uh, upon us and, and, and force us into things and they have, their power has been stripped away, uh, they're still doing everything that they can. And there is still very much a, uh, a spiritual warfare that's taking place. We see this in Ephesians 6. Uh, Satan and his demons still love to tempt. They can't force us to sin, but they love to, to throw things out there, stumbling blocks that we might stumble into sin and sin against God, that we might trespass against him and go where we should not go. But this passage calls us to, to remember not just the bad news uh, of uh, that that you have sinned against God, uh, that you are dead in your trespasses. That's what we typically rehearse. Uh, how can God forgive me? I have sinned against him. They love to, to bring that up. Uh, they love to remind us of that. But, but, but this passage it lays out what, everything that we have, what God has done through his son going to the cross. Uh, and, and this reality of, hey, now we live in a world where Satan has been defeated, where we have been forgiven, uh, but we still, we still struggle with sin, 
which means, which means we still struggle with condemning ourselves. Uh, but, but we need to, to remind ourselves of this complete message. And it's one, again, that we, that we see at the end of, of Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7.24, Paul says, as he's been talking about this, this tension in his own life of, I know I have a new life in Christ, but, but I end up doing what I don't want to do. <laughs> Uh, and then I'm mad at myself for doing what I don't want to do. There, there's this tension, and he comes to this conclusion in, in Romans 7:24. He says, "Wretched man that I am." That, that sounds uh, like some like some self condemnation. But but again, is it true? Yes, we we are sinners. He says, "Wretched man that I am." But then he says, "Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who, who can deliver me from myself, from my own sin?" And then what conclusion does he come to? See, he, he preaches this entire message, the complete message, not just his, his deadness in sin, but his life in Christ. Verse 25, he says, but Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. But then... Oftentimes we, and this is partly just because of the way we do our devotions or read the Bible, uh, when we get to the end of a chapter, what do we typically do? <laughs> we, we stop reading. Uh, but, but, but look, Paul's argument, uh, he didn't make a chapter break there. That was added later. Uh, so when you look uh, immediately at also at, at chapter 8, verse 1, so immediately coming off of this, this condemnation of himself, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore... Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, he, he understands his own sinfulness and, and how uh, he should stand before God. And by his own merit, he's no, my works condemn me. But the reality of because by his faith, his sins have been taken from him, they've been taken off of him and and nailed to the cross of Jesus. There is now no more grounds for the believer to be condemned. Paul says, hey, there's no condemnation for me, even though I, I feel wretched. Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's what we need to remember when our sin crops back up, when, when those thoughts pop into our mind of, I'm not good enough, I haven't done enough, and and. Like I said earlier, that's true, and, and you should echo that. You, you should say with Paul, wretched person that I am, but don't end there. You, you need to, again, complete that message, but even though I'm wretched, even though I am a sinner, there is forgiveness and grace and mercy found in Christ, and my sins have been taken from me and placed upon his cross. There's a, a song by uh, the... the Two, two men who form, I guess, a musical group or an artist, uh, Shane and Shane. And there's a, a song called Embracing Accusations that just that captures this so, so well. And I'm going to read the lyrics to you. They write, The father of lies, coming to steal, kill, and destroy. All my hopes of being good enough. I hear him saying, Cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. It says, The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. 
that I cannot gain salvation. Embracing accusation. Could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, Cursed are the ones who can't abide. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the first verse so conveniently over me, but he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. And we need to remember that this morning. Uh, and as, as we began, said that we have that incomplete message that we normally remind ourselves of, that I'm not good enough, that I haven't done enough, that I, that I have sinned against God, I have sinned against others, and I am a, a failure. And again, that, that's a true message, but an incomplete message. Jesus completes that message, that your sins, your failures, your uh, trespasses against God are taken away because you have been made alive together with Christ. And that is what God has accomplished through His Son at the cross. And how is that spiritual life enacted and brought about through the forgiveness of your sins, which have been nailed to the cross? And every demonic power that would try and remind you of that, every uh, every being who would want to only preach the bad news to you ha- has been defeated, has been triumphed over. And may we remember that. May we remember the victory that we have in Christ over sin, over death, over Satan and his demons. And may we repeatedly preach the entire gospel to ourselves. As, as we've done in the past, uh, I want to... Uh, I'll close us in prayer and then we're going to give about a minute of time uh, just for uh, for you to uh, think about what you've heard this morning and to respond in prayer to God. And then uh, we'll close out with one final song uh, and some announcements. But I would really encourage you to, to, to think through what you've heard uh, and to respond to it. And then we get to to take what we've heard and sing it back to God. Uh, in a familiar song. But let's let's go to the Lord together in prayer right now. Gracious and holy God, you are our creator. You are our sustainer. You have given us life and breath and everything else. Lord, you are intimately acquainted with all of our ways. You know the depths of our soul. You know the depths of our sinfulness. You know our sinfulness better than we know it ourselves. And yet, while we were dead, while we were in complete rebellion against you, you sent your Son to the cross. And even though we were in rebellion against you, you by your grace, by your mercy, because of the great love with which you have loved us, chose to make us alive together with your Son. But you are a just and holy God as well. And you did not simply ignore our sin, but you paid for it. It needed to be paid for with a debt 
All debts must be paid and our sin debt has been nailed to the cross of Christ. He has been punished for our crimes. He has borne our iniquities. And Lord, for that we thank you. We praise you. We acknowledge that we have deserved none of that. We have deserved only your wrath, but you have given us mercy and grace. You have given us victory where we should have been defeated and conquered. And now we are more than conquerors through Christ who has loved us. Lord, I pray that you would imprint this truth of the gospel upon our hearts, that it is final, that it is complete, that we, that we no longer need to, to work for your favor. We could never earn your favor, God. But Lord, may we now, because of what Christ has done, respond to you with love, with worship. May the the life that we now live be lived for Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And may we bring honor and praise to you in our lives of worship. May all the glory be given to Christ. May all the glory be given to you, Father because of what you have done in our lives through your Son, Jesus Christ, on his cross. In his name we pray. Amen.